Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ. Episode 103 of Baseball and Barbecue. Oh, man, Jeff. I Jeff Cohen, my co-host. I'm yes. Leonard Aberman. I'm here. You are here. I Man, it's been a long. It's longer than two weeks, actually, I know. isn't it? It has it's, been, yes. Yeah. Oh, it's been way, way too long, Jeff. But you know what? I love when we pull back the curtain and we sh- we tell a little bit about the, how the show works, as if people didn't know. You know, just because we haven't been on in a little while doesn't mean we haven't been recording some great content. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And great content have, coming. Yeah. And we have great guests coming up. So uh, we're not going to say who because we always like the element of surprise. But if you guys think that we just don't do anything during the time that, that you don't hear from us, you are sorely mistaken. And Len, who do we have on this episode? You know, I was hoping you would ask. <laughs> <laughs> With this, this is a, an episode that people are going to say, wow, did you hear episode 103 of baseball and BBQ? Because we have on none other than Eric Sherman. And Jeff, tell us who Eric Sherman is. And give us a little, little background on him. Eric Sherman is one of the great baseball writers of our time. He has written several books, but this one is really, uh, he, talks about it's it's called the other side of glory two sides of glory two sides i don't of mean glory. to correct you <laughs> thank you two sides of glory about the 1986 boston red sox where he goes around and interviews the members of that team and their stories are just so compelling it was oh, yeah. fantastic i never 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 thought that there was so much going on with that team i don't know i, I can't imagine that every team has things like that going on. But wow, great book. And and Jeff, you're right. You know, I think Eric was even, I think this past week, didn't you say he was at a book signing or something? And in, in... he was he was in Boston. Yeah. Right. right. I'm just yes. saying it was right. It's not happening. It's not. It, it happened already. Right. It happened already. But my point is that this this is a big thing in Boston. Yes. And, and he was at that book signing. Yes. Um, but what? When you think back to that team and, and, the, and the 86 Red Sox, I mean, everybody remembers, of course, the 86 Mets, I guess, of course. But that Red Sox team. Anyway, you're right. That that's one. But the, but uh, the behind the scenes of the stories yes. of these players that what they were going through, it, uh, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And that is why that's going to be a two parter. 
Yes. Yeah. Because yes. again, curtain back when we have an interview that is just going very well and the guest has not put any kind of restriction on our time, we continue. And in this case, he didn't put any restriction. Right. The interview was going great. And he had the last interview with Billy Buckner. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's why we split it. That, yeah. That's why it's a two-parter. Right. And then Jeff, this, this was very exciting for the podcast. We went across the pond, as they say, to London, England. Again, curtain back. We pulled up curtain back. It was seven in the morning here, 12 in the afternoon there when we did this interview. And as you guys will hear, uh, Jeff and not actually our guests either are morning people and they run restaurants. So to them, apparently 12 noon is still morning. Exactly. Uh, seven here is definitely morning. But that is Sarit Packer and Itamar Sarulovich. They have written the book Chasing Smoke, Cooking Over Fire around the levant and jeff it is a beautiful cookbook it is and they are they're fantastic they really we had such a great time interviewing them i can't wait to try their restaurants they're in london so i may i may have a while before i get to do that but that was great yes and with that we'll start with eric sherman Leonard and I are thrilled to have with us a New York Times bestselling author and baseball historian, Eric Sherman. I first discovered Eric when I picked up the book, Steve Blass, A Pirate for Life, and I became a fan of his books ever since. He has co-authored books with Mookie Wilson, Davey Johnson, and a recent book with Art Shamsky, which is one of my all-time favorite reads of all time, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets. I must say that After the Miracle is not a book just for Mets fans is one of those books which really transcends teams. A wonderful book, as on the title it says, Brotherhood of the Team, a chemistry which is very rare. Check out Eric's website, ericshermanbaseball.com. Eric is with us to talk about his latest book, Two Sides of Glory, 1986 Boston Red Sox in their own words. Welcome to Baseball BBQ, Eric Sherman. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you, uh, Jeff and Leonard. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. This is a, a fantastic book. And uh, you, you did a book called Kings of Queens about the 86 Mets. And I guess this is the opposite of it on the other, well, the other side of glory, which is the name of the book. Tell us why, why you wanted to do a book like this. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, with the sales of this book, a lot of people are buying what they call the companion book. Like they call it the companion book, Kings of Queens. But this book with the 86 Red Sox, you know, I like to refer to it as the other side of the story. You know, a lot has been written about the 86 Mets. And I just felt that, well, I, I lived in Boston in the mid 80s. I, I went to Emerson College during that time. And I worked uh, at the CBS affiliate um, in the sports department during that time. And, and actually got to know some of the Red Sox players a little bit back then. I mean, that was a magical season up in Boston. You know, that was the only Red Sox team over a 28 year period from 1976 until they finally won the World Series in 2004, that won an American League pennant. And it was a star-crossed team. They were a fifth-place team in 85. And then they picked up Donnie Baylor. Roger Clemens regained his health and had one of the greatest seasons of all time. And, and then they added some pieces like Tom Seaver. You may have heard of him. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Spike Owen, uh, Dave Henderson, and Joe Sambito had 14 saves. Great comeback story that, that year for him and the lefty that they really needed out of the bullpen. So uh, it was a magical se- season until the very end. And I wanted to see how the highest of highs with what they did against the Angels, getting down to their final strike before being eliminated themselves, to less than two weeks later, being in the same position uh, and having the Mets do it to them. Well, actually the exact opposite position. How that affected their, the rest of their lives and the rest of their careers. And I thought it would be a compelling story. And I was right because of the stories that they told me. The book is divided up basically with stories, with interviews of all, I wouldn't say all, not all the players, you even point that out, but very key players in the, in the, uh, on the team. And so I could just, I could open the book at any point and just pick one. But I'm going to start with one that I, I, I'm amazed with, oil, Dennis Oil Can Boyd. Let's get that right away. He said <laughs> something that blew my mind. So, Eric, you, you must have had a reaction when he said it. And what he said was that he pitched high every game, right? Did he, yeah. He, was, he, he, he smoked weed before every start, right? Am I getting that right? You're getting that. Ap- absolutely. You're getting that right. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're sitting there. You're, you're talking to Dennis Oil Cam Boyd, who's a great pitcher. He was. And what's your reaction upon hearing that? Well, I wasn't surprised because, you know, he had come out with a book, I guess, about seven or eight years ago. And, and he talked about his drug use. I mean, what surprised me was how far it went back. I mean, with his drinking and with the marijuana. I mean, since he was like a little, a little kid, like a, a little leaguer, he, he thought for sure that he took tests in school better because, you know, he might be a little high and um, it, it just gave him clarity and focus. And I think focus is the key word that it gave him almost like a tunnel vision and, you know, just helped him concentrate. So he'd been smoking marijuana, I mean, pretty much his whole life. Right. <laughs> I was fascinated with the oil can Boyd chapter. I mean, he had a passion for baseball. I still burn say he said he's playing on, on senior leagues still. As I'm reading the words, I can tell in his voice how much he loved baseball and his dad telling him about the Negro Leagues and meeting Satchel Page. But he's also very saddened about the state of America, uh, African American playing baseball today. Can you talk about how it's you know about how he feels about that? Well, he he cares about the game. You know he. He cares about the place of the African-American in the national pastime. You know, he, I mean, when, when he was a kid, you know, he's not, not much older than I am anyway. Um, you know, I mean, we remember the days when roughly 28% of the major leagues were comprised of African-Americans. And, you know, you looked at any all-star team, my goodness, the National League all-star team, you know, let's just go around the horn. It, you know, you'd always have Willie Stargell. You'd have Willie Mays. You'd have Hank Aaron. Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan, absolutely. Uh, Lee May. Um, you, you know, you and, and then on the American League side, you know, you'd have Frank Robinson and Reggie Jackson. And, you know, the list just goes on. But Vita Blue started an all-star game back in 71. So, 
I mean, it's just not there anymore. And, and he feels that because of that, a lot of the flair is missing from the game. You know, he, he went on to say that if African-Americans aren't from the South, then maybe their mother or grandmother was from the South. And an oil can believes that the Americans with the greatest personality and sense of humor from the South. And, and, and so the nicknames many times are derived from Southerners. And, you know, if you just look back to the 80s and, you know, just take this 86 Red Sox team, instantly they're recognized by oil can, Dewey, Chicken Man. Wade Boggs. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, Rocket. It just goes on and on. So, you know, they, they, they have all these, you know, nicknames that we instantly know who they are 35 years later. <laughs> right. And I'm surprised the way he talked about Jim Rice and, and Don Bailey. I mean, that, that kind of took me aback. And looking at your reaction, looks like he did you too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he was a little harsh. You know, Jim Jim Rice went through a lot. I mean, he was the Red Sox first black superstar. And, you know, his his first full season in 75, that's when they were, you know, he had the busing up in Boston for the first time. And, you know, that split the city apart. And he was coming up during that time. So I thought he was a little bit harsh, you know, by getting on Rice and Baylor for not being more outspoken you know, for the, you know, for the African-American. I, I, I thought he went a bit far, but, you know, oil, oil can certainly entitled to his opinion. And he's, he's really two people. You know, there's the street smart guy who's talking jive. And then there's the oil can who, you know, you could picture him getting up in front of a college cl- classroom uh, as a professor. He can be very eloquent, which, which made them so damn entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I picked Oil Can as the first one to start with, but there, that team was just, as you said, Chicken Man. I, I love that. Now, Yankee fans might want to refer to Wade Boggs as their player because they did win a World Series with him. Yeah. And every, all Yankee fans are going to remember him riding on a horse on the field. But Wade Boggs was a major part of that team is in the Hall of Fame wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. And tell us a little bit about what what I love about the book. I'm just a a little off now is that you got these guys to open up. Now, I'm not saying that Wade Boggs opened up so much about the chicken, but I love the stories about him. And when he'd go to a city and he's extremely superstitious. So tell us a little bit about that, but also how the cities would try to get him off his game. Yeah, so there, there was no, all all ball ball players have superstitions. Who was it? The Musgrove who was pitching the no hitter the other night. Right. Yes, it came out that he had to go to the bathroom like really bad, but he didn't want to mess with a good thing. So you know he. He held it in for the last two two innings because he didn't. And you know, there's the famous story about Keith Hernandez, you know, sitting in Davy Johnson's office, and he wasn't going to leave that chair because he felt it had hits in it, you know, um, in Game Six of the '86 series. So with Wade, you know, he just went on a hot streak at, after eating chicken in his rookie year, 
And so he decided that he was going to have chicken before every game. And that's what he did. And, um, and he would have chicken made all kinds of different ways. And, and he actually, uh, USA Today wrote a piece on him in the mid 80s about his favorite chicken uh, restaurants from around the country and where he would go. And so the Brewers got wind of, no, it was a radio station rather, I think in Milwaukee. And so they decided to go to the restaurant where Boggs would eat his chicken at, and they bought all the chicken that, that morning. So, you know, like even the chicken that wasn't made yet. So there was no way that Boggs would be able to have his chicken lunch at this restaurant. Well, you know, the radio station had a lot of fun, fun with it. And Boggs ended up getting like four hits that, that night. So the radio reporter went to the Red Sox dugout, you know, that night after the game and said, geez, Wade, you know, you didn't have chicken today, but you had a big game. And, and he goes, oh, contraire, I did. What happened was the owner of that restaurant felt so bad for Boggs that he actually went out to the supermarket, made chicken for him, and had it delivered to the ballpark, even though Boggs found another place to have chicken anyway. But uh, that, that's a true story. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I love. That, that's why I highly recommend this Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox in their own words, because it's stories like that. As a baseball fan, I, I don't care what team you root for, but how do you not love stories like that? That's just, Jeff, I know you yes. have some that you love too. So, yes, absolutely. It. So, you know, truth be told, Len and I are both Mets fans. I mean, I was 24 years old when the Mets won the World Series in 86. Hated the Red Sox. Reading the book, I, I can't hate them anymore. <laughs> you can't. Oh. Uh, I, but I still hate Roger Clemens. So let me ask you this. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about Roger Clemens and PDD because that's been beaten to death, and it comes up every year with the Hall of Fame balloting, and you've read something about it, so let the pe- people read it if they want. But I'm going to you, ask you about Game 6, where Clemens had a small blister on his finger and goes up to the manager, and Ma- I guess McNamara was that kind of old-school type of manager. And did he take what Robert, uh, Roger Clemens saying, like, take, asking me out of the game? I know we'll never know, but tell us what happened with, with that the scene between Clemens and McNamara. I think that we finally know what happened because it it's no longer a case of Clemens' word against McNamara's word. Marty Barrett was standing right there, and Barrett said that you know Roger did not ask out of that game. And if if you watch the game on YouTube, you'll see that Clemens had a batting helmet on. I mean, he, he was ready to hit. So between that type of evidence and, and, you know, with Marty Barrett, who's pretty much the most straight, narrow guy you'd ever want to meet, you know, be, being there and, and knowing that Roger did not ask out of the game, you know, I, I, could, I believe Roger. And, you know, Clemens had said to me, and it's in the book, you know, that, Really, I, I mean, he the only thing that would have faltered because of the blister would be when he would throw a slider or a curveball. So he was just going to stick with fastballs and a baby change. And, and I think he had given up five hits 
and four of them were off of you know a slider or a curve. He only gave up one hit off the fastball. So he could have just stuck with the fastball and the baby changeup and probably would have been fine. And you know, you think if he could have just gone out there for maybe another inning, how it may have affected you know the outcome of the game in the series. Right. And this wasn't in the book, but uh, and you mentioned about watching on YouTube. I noticed he is this after the fact, years after the fact. And when Clemens was on the mound of game six, he had like a scruffy facial hair. Yet after being taken out, he was shown on the bench clean shaven. I found it odd that he would shave, I guess, get ready for a press conference rather than being in the Red Sox dugout. Did he ever address that? We, we didn't talk about it, but I know the story. And it, it had something to do with his father. That, that he did that, he would shave like immediately, I guess, after being taken out of the games. And I'm paraphrasing this, but I have heard that story and, and it, had, it had to do with his father. Oh, really? Okay. I never knew that, obviously. And uh, thank you for clearing that up. I just, <laughs> I thought that was very odd, but <laughs> he had a reason. <laughs> it, it, it is a little odd, yeah. And, you know, to do it immediately after and then go back in the dugout. Yeah. Eric, you know, Jeff doesn't hold back on his hatred for certain players, okay? And I could tell you this, we had... Baseball players, you know, not the person, you know. The, right, the, the player, the player, right. We had on the author Dave Berger, who talked about, uh, he has a book, uh, Comic and Freakish Injuries or whatever, and Roger Clemens apparently got bit by, uh, I don't know, his mother-in-law's dog or something. And, and Jeff was very vocal in saying how, good, uh, you know, basically, so... Eric, I, I, I would say that one guest we will not be having on this podcast is The Rocket. Because <laughs> I don't know if Jeff would even let him on, but if he ever agreed to come on. Yeah, you know, I, I have to tell you, I, I interviewed Roger, in, you know, and, and this is under something that would never happen today, but... I, I guess it was a couple of weeks before he struck out the 20 hitters in 86. And, and, you know, then he became a household name, but I interviewed him uh, in the dugout before a start, you know, that's what would never happen today. And he was a shy guy and, or at least he was shy with me, you know, maybe he wasn't that shy, but, but then when I met him, you know, we sat in the exact same spot in the Red Sox dugout as we did back in 86 in April of 86 and which was kind of neat all these years later and Roger could not have been more accommodating more friendly you get the sense that he loves baseball he was actually in Boston purely on a charity a mission not just for his own charity but for the Jimmy fund he was on his way the next day he was flying to Scotland to go golfing and when he came back from Scotland one of the first things he did was he, he texted me. He's like, you know, I, I think you had more that you wanted to ask me. You know, I'm, I'm free tonight if you are. And, and we've stayed in touch. Like, we'll text from time to time. And, you know, if something happens in baseball, he's a huge baseball fan. You know, he, he really wasn't at all what I expected. I mean, I was very impressed. And, and I would talk to his teammates, and they're like, yeah, Roger's the greatest. You know, he's you know, he can't do enough for people. And, and even people at Fenway, you know, the garage attendant would say, Oh, I know Roger. Yeah. He, he's a great guy. You know, he always says hi. He 
know my he knows my wife's name you know you know it's really a surprise because this is the same guy that you know threw a charred bat at mike piazza in the world series and and wasn't afraid to come up and in but i hear don drysdale was a great guy off the field too so you know there's a difference between you know the pitcher and the human being sometimes right and don drysdale told him to pitch up and in more than once, because the second time that means he didn't, he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't do it on purpose. So. Exactly. Yes. You know, as baseball fans, we want to root for the team that we, we root for our team to win, and, and that's pretty much it. But I knew Dwight Evans was a, a good ball player, a very good ball player. What he was going through during his career, it just brings, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. I mean, my gosh. Uh, could you tell us the time with, with Dwight Evans and, and his story? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you are talking about a borderline Hall of Famer. I mean, to me, he and Dave Parker had had the two best arms out of right field that I've ever seen. I'm a little bit young for Clemente, but Evans and Parker, and and Evans also, I mean, he was a a heck of a hitter. And, you know, I, I, I believe he belongs in the Hall of Fame, but he's certainly borderline. But anyway, he played his career. While, while raising two boys with what's commonly known as elephant man's disease. It's called uh, NF for short. It's this long name and, and it's, it's horrible. And so when, when Dwight and I were looking to get together, uh, also at Fenway Park, you know, we had to cancel a bunch of times because I think it was his youngest son. He had two sons. I think it was his youngest son. I might be wrong about that, but wasn't doing well. It was stage four brain cancer at that point. And so we had to cancel, then he improved. And so we were able to meet. But from the time that Dewey and I met at Fenway, uh, not that long ago, you know, three years ago, maybe, to today, he lost both of his sons. And, and, and during his playing days, there were many, many times he would come straight from the hospital from, you know, after one of his sons would get sur- surgery, sleepless nights, you know, and go to Fenway. And that's how he would have to perform. And and there were times when his boys would ask him to hit a home run for him. And he not only did that, but one time one of his sons asked him to hit two home runs for him. And he did it. And here's the crazy thing about it. I was 16 years old at the time, and I was attending Ted Williams Baseball Camp in Massachusetts. And we had a field trip that that night to Fenway Park, and that was the night that we were there, the night that Dewey hit the two home runs, and that was the same night that he promised one of his sons, who was bedridden, uh, that he would hit him two home runs that night. It's just, you can't make this stuff up, and he did that for another child that was sick in the hospital. I think a child he met through the Jimmy Fund. So it's remarkable, you know? I mean, he's just a such a decent, kind, impressive man, Dwight Evans, you know? Right, yeah, and you talk about this story about the, like, another boy that he met as a child, and he met him again when he was a, an adult yeah. at, at, at Fenway Park. And he was surprised that he, I guess he lived so long, and. And it was a nice moment. Well, he surprised him because they were doing a story on the boy. Well, he was a young man at that point. 
And uh, I guess it was Nesson that was doing a story, New England Sports Network. And Dewey, who lives in Florida, but occasionally will we'll come up to Boston. And, and Dewey surprised him and you know, came up right behind him while the cameras were rolling. So as, as you can imagine, it was a beautiful moment. Yeah, it definitely was. And it, that, and it's all the, the passion of Dwight. That's going to bring tears to your eyes. I mean, really, it was really very moving. Thank you. Eric, th- throughout this book, and we know, baseball fans know, that it was not that error that caused them to lose the World Series. But you can't get away from the 86 World Series without the mention of Bill Buckner. It's a shame. It's, it's, it's a shame. And, and this book goes into it and t- talks about so many of the things that led up to, to the loss, how the tables were turned with the, you know, where they were the victors in their series. And, you know, the Red Sox won their, their playoff series. And now, so Buckner is, is throughout the book. So many people in the book say it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. They call him Buck, right? They, they say it wasn't Buck's fault. And, and he gets so much of the blame. And he, he came to grips with it. I mean, he had a relationship, you talk about in the book, with Mookie Wilson. He did a, a TV show that Jeff loves, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. He was on an episode of that. I mean, he, he came to grips with it. But he should not have had to uh, suffer as he did. Can you talk about your relationship with Buckner and just that chapter? And, and, and you start the book with that chapter. So it, it's pretty important. I do. And it's interesting. I was going to start the book with Roger Clemens because Clemens was the story in 86, not just with the Red Sox, but he, you know, he won the MVP award. He won the Cy Young award. And really Clemens was the one that made believers out of that Red Sox team so early in the season. But I decided on Buckner instead. Well, you know, he passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. And the interview I did with him was the last major interview of his life. And Buck and I had become pretty good friends. We would see each other when pretty much whenever he would come up to New York for a signing with Mookie. And I did, I co-wrote Mookie Wilson's autobiography, and that's how I met Buck. And, you know, Buck and Mookie had become very good friends and business partners. Buck put his three kids through college, through the money here and signing copies of that photo of Mookie hitting the ball, you know, the dribbler up the first baseline and the ball going past Buckner. So he made a ton of money signing that photo. And he figured, well, you know, I mean, if if I'm going to suffer and my family's going to suffer, you know, some of the outrage that really was undeserving, then I might as well make some money off of it. But, you know, you're talking about a guy that had 2,715 lifetime hits He was a batting champion. He had a higher fielding percentage than Lou Gehrig and played 22 seasons. And yet, like you said, Leonard, you know, he he's remembered by the average fan for making that error. And really, Mookie probably beats it anyway. You know, and it's just so unfair. And yes, he he did curb your enthusiasm. Yes, he made light of it. But he told me. You know, in that interview, he said, you know, I I still have a scar from it. And I think what hurt him the most was the effect it had on his family. 
I mean, he had a little boy at the time, and he had, he had a teacher at school say, you know, there was something like, you know, the Red Sox lost because your dad made an error, you know, or where you got traded because or your dad got traded because he made an error, something stupid like that. I mean, you know, the, his son was like four or five years old, and it was just that type of thing. And then he would, you know, occasionally um, he'd be in a car and someone would recognize him and make some stupid comment or, you know, if, if he was signing baseballs, you know, some kid once said, Hey, you know, don't give him a ball to sign. He might drop it. You know, like he had to kind of live with that. And he was such a prideful man as he should have been for the career that he had. And he just had to deal with that crap. And it, it really he never really got, got over it. You know, I, I how could he? Right. And unfortunately, there was a movie made uh, called Fever Pitch, which gave it the name, The Buckner Game. And that's just unfortunate because you're right. He is a, he was a fantastic player. Yeah. Nothing, uh, you know, he, he was a great player. You're right. And maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's not for me to decide, but I mean, what a career. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, another borderline Hall of Famer. I mean, as it was, you know, they only had Seaver for a half a season, but he's in the Hall. Jim, Jim Rice is in the hall. Wade Boggs is in the, is in the hall. Clemens, my God, seven Cy Young Awards. I mean, you can, I mean, that's a whole other show. But, I mean, certainly he has the numbers to get in. Baylor was a borderline Hall of Famer. Dwight Evans. Dwight Evans, yeah. uh, cer- certainly. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, I mean, that, that was a great ball club. Yes. And you yeah, mean my favorite player of all time, Tom Seaver. Mm-hmm. And how surreal was that? Tom Seaver being on the field in 86, playing against the Mets, just a few feet away from his, his roommate in the 69 team, uh, Bud Harrelson, who was coaching third base. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so when Seaver thought it was over, you know, in game, game six, he kind of, you know, makes a motion to Buddy, you know, hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you soon, you know, as if to say, you know, this is over. See you later. And and then, of course, the Mets had that miraculous comeback. And then, you know, Buddy did the same thing a couple of nights later in game, game seven. Hey, I'll call you, you know, just to kind of get Seaver back. But, you know, that, that really, I mean, Seaver's greatest impact, he, he went five and seven, you know, and he was basically by that point, in his career, fourth starter. But, you know, there are people, Marty Barrett, Peter Gammons, uh, the, the famous Boston Globe writer, they swear that if Seaver were healthy for that series, that he would have put them over the top. I always go back, I mean, I think it's fun to think about how the baseball gods messed this one up. How Seaver gets injured at the very end of the regular season and I mean, could you imagine? I mean, just, I mean, you, you know where I'm going, going with this. Yeah. <laughs> game, game six or seven, but especially, you know, game seven, I mean, bringing in Al Nipper when they did. I mean, Nipper, his ERA was over five that, that, that year. I mean, you know, they, they bring in Seaver to hold the fort. Uh, the Red Sox did score a couple more runs. I mean, a lot could have happened. And the bigger question is what Clemens was doing in the bullpen in, in game seven, you know, after Hearst, like today we see, 
all these ace pitchers come out of the bullpen, you know, to finish off. I, I remember Bumgarner. Sure, Randy Johnson did that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I mean, why Clemens wasn't in there in, in, instead of, you know, Nipper and some of the others? It's beyond me. That's a, that's a great point. I want to ask you when you went out with the C. Seaver with Bud Harrelson and our champs and Jerry Kuzman. You obviously talked to him about his time with the Red Sox, uh, even though that wasn't the focus. I mean, did he think what did he what did he say about playing uh, playing against the Mets? He downplayed it, as you might expect. But you know, so when we went out to lunch, this is when I was talking to him about his days with the Red Sox. So he was sitting to my right, and Buddy was sitting to my left, and. So they enjoyed tell, tell, telling the story about what we just spoke about, you know, when they both thought it was over and uh, call, call me that type of thing. But Seaver, you know, he, he knew that that wasn't his team, you know, that that team belonged to, you know, Jim Rice and Dwight Evans and Roger Clemens and, and Bruce Hurst. And he was there more as a mentor, I think, for the guys like, Clemens and Hurst and Sambito and and he was a tremendous help, a tremendous mentor. It was no accident that the Red Sox, upon Seaver's arrival, put his locker right next to Clemens. And you know, Seaver would sit next to Hurst every game he pitched, including those World Series games, and would remind him, you know, get the first strike on every on every hitter. Make sure you get the first out on it, you know, every hitter of every inning, just those types of things. Can you imagine having Tom Seaver sitting next to you just, you know, to keep you calm and composed? And nobody can tell me that didn't play a role in the kind of run that Bruce Hurst had. Hurst finished the regular season, I want to say 6-0, and pitched well against the Angels, and then darn near beat the Mets single-handedly. You know, he almost beat them three times. So Seaver's influence on Hurst and on Clemens, just by Clemens watching him, how you know Clemens described it as him being like an artist out, out there. You know, the first inning only throwing 86 or 87 mile, miles an hour, but then saving that fastball until the second time through the lineup. It was Seaver's last year of his career. And you know, he wasn't the same pitcher that he was, of course, but he had the the baseball smart, you know, the pitching smarts, the intelligence, you know, to get himself through the game. I, I think that maybe the baseball gods actually took some pity on the Mets because I think the one thing that Met fans, <laughs> seeing the World Series win, incredible. But to see Seaver pitching against the Mets, you know, in a Red Sox uniform, against the Mets in the World Series, that's that's a vision that I don't do not want to say. I I'm glad that they were in, that that did not happen. Well, it's interesting. Like we were talking about how he could have appeared in, in games six and seven. What I would absolutely have loved to have seen, instead of Bob Stanley trotting in from the Red Sox bullpen in game six with the game on the line to see Seaver, because. I doubt that would have happened because Stanley, you know, I mean, he was a Red Sox there forever. I mean, he was a Red Sox forever. You, 
And at one time, he was a spectacular relief pitcher, but he he hadn't had his best season, that's for sure. And and it, it kind of opened up the door for Calvin Chiraldi in the second half of that season. And Chiraldi, it's very easy to forget unless you lived in Boston like I did. Chiraldi was the talk of the town in the second half. He had an ERA of like 1.4 something in the second half. And I mean, he was lights out. He, he had this just explosive fastball. And Boston fans weren't used to that. You know, the steamer, Bob Stanley, you know, he, you know, he threw the sinker. But my God, you had Chiraldi coming out of the bullpen throwing lightning. And it was exciting. You know, it's like the, and people were like, my God, you know, we're, we're, we're really not going to blow this one. Because you know, the Red Sox had had a terrible history of blowing second half leads. I mean, they were up, I think, at the high watermark by about eight or nine games around the middle part of the season. And, uh, I mean, that's nothing. I mean, they blew a 14-game lead against the Yankees in 78 with a team every bit as good as this one. Uh, Red Sox fans, Chiraldi made a huge difference. You know, quick story. Uh, in 1984, I was in the public relations department for the Mets as an intern. Without oh, you know, uh, Jay Horowitz and all that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I remember going through the box scores in the minor league, and I, I saw Chiraldi, and I'm, he was, in 84 and 85, he was just fantastic. And yes. I was kind of sad when they, they traded him, well, they got Papa Ojeda for him, so uh, not that sad, but he was, uh, you're right. I remember him going back to 84, and he, he was going to be a really good pitcher, and he was on the team with uh, Clemens in, in Texas. I think Spike Owen was also on that team as well. Yeah, and then when they all became Red Sox, they called them the Austin Red Sox because they, you know, they they all went to the same same college. Yeah, I mean there were scouts that had uh, Chiraldi ranked higher than Clemens, but the difference between the two, and um, you know, I put the question to Clemens, and Clemens he answered it delicately. But basically, my question was, you know, the one element that you kind of had over Chiraldi was intimidation. And he's like, yeah. And, you know, intimidation is winning. And Chiraldi lacked that, that killer instinct. He had a lot of talent. But he didn't have that, that killer aspect that, that Clemens had. And, you know... That's something that can mean a lot. I mean, like we talked about Drysdale earlier. It's the same thing. I mean, Drysdale was a mean son of a gun out out on the mound. And and then, you know, you meet him in person, and he's the most mellow, sweet guy you could ever meet. And we want to thank Eric Sherman. And we're going to – I can't wait till next episode to hear part two. Yeah, no, I I really uh, agree with you, but – so many things during this interview um, that just, wow. Yes. You, you, you really, it, it definitely puts in perspective too. They're, they're major league athletes, but you know what? They've got lives. They're yes, just they, do. they do. People with a talent that we love to watch, but they have lives. Yes. Yeah. And I want to tell people, if you want to reach the show, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Our Facebook is baseballandbbq. The Twitter, where you can connect with us, is at 
Baseball BBQ. Uh, Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue with barbecues all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please rate and review us. And you know what, Jeff? Four people, four lucky people did respond to those those numbers. The email, the any way you contact us, the Gmail. And they entered the contest for the sauces for Edna's Kitchen Sauces. And guess what? what? We have four winners. Oh, right. They have been, they've been notified. And we, we will announce their names when Brie comes on the show in a little while. Okay. All right. What do we have up next? We have Chasing Smoke. Cooking over fire is one of the oldest cooking methods in the world. Here in the States, we tend to stick with the old standbys of large cuts of meat cooked low and slow, or the same with smaller cuts of meat directly over flame. Sometimes we forget that cooking over fire is done all over the world in all cultures. Our guests today have written a beautiful cookbook. It's, you, you might want to call it even a, a travel book with recipes. It is gorgeous. It is actually a book that you might call a coffee table book because you will want to refer to this over and over. Gorgeous book. They did a tour around the Levant, and this book has recipes from their trip, their travels. It gives you the chance to explore new foods. It makes you realize that all cultures cook over fire, and it's not just here. We are so happy that we have Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich, who have three London restaurants, Honey and Co., Honey and Smoke, and Honey and Spice. They have written the book, Chasing Smoke, Cooking Over Fire Around the Levant. We could not be more honored to welcome our guests who are coming to us from the UK. Welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. Oh, thank you. Us. Thank you so well, much. We we could have listened to this for for ages. It's so nice to hear someone say such nice things about you. Also pronouncing our names and pronouncing so well. our names. You, you obviously <laughs> stayed up all night practicing. I'm sure. <laughs> I haven't gone to sleep. And, and as a matter of fact, before we before we really get into the heart of it, I often like to pull back the curtain and and tell our listeners they like to know how things go on. Truth be told, it's 7 a.m. here. It's 12 o'clock in London. And Jeff is not a morning person. <laughs> so the fact that he is up at 7 a.m. doing this with his cup of coffee is really a, a tribute. <laughs> and um, and really and really terrific. So and, and we, we are, are so happy to join so us. Honored. We are so honored. We are uh, not morning people. We would not wake up like waking up at seven o'clock in the morning. I think is a violation of human <laughs> rights. Not, not since we were opening restaurants. Yeah. And now that we have some staff, we try to not wake up at those times anymore. So, well, we, so we appreciate it. It is much appreciated and respected. <laughs> well, we want to thank you for for joining us. And I, my, I want to open up the questioning with, for, right? This is just a uh, a great book. Uh, the the photography. You took us on a trip around the Levant. And my, my first question is, I never heard of the Levant. 
before reading this book. Could you explain what region of the world the Levant is? Well, it's very fluid. It's not a very defined, it's more kind of a feel. So the word Levant is from French, which means uh, sunrise, the east, if you're in France. And uh, we kind of, it's been used over the years to describe what we now call the Middle East or uh, MENA. But, but not the entirety of the kind of Middle yeah. East. So more, I think, based around the Mediterranean Sea. And in our minds, at least, we were looking at it as this kind of crescent around the Mediterranean Sea, where we grew up and where we felt we really wanted to explore more of the other countries around there and see what influences yeah. uh, happen. But but yeah, you could also define it as Middle East, I suppose. In Yeah, so we, 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 we like that term. We like that word. It has kind of an old world romance to it. And our interpretation of it is kind of the eastern side of the Mediterranean. So kind of like if you imagine a little crescent from Greece to Egypt. Yeah. That'll be kind of our remit. Wow. Yep. Now, now tell us about your your background as far as growing up. Was was food a major thing in, in your households? I mean, food in Israel is a major thing. It's kind of a, the, the religion of the country. I suppose everything revolves around food. You know, it's put aside all the other issues with uh, with religion in Israel. Food is definitely a, a unifying uh, aspect of it. Everything revolves around food. It's a big part. There's lots of pride in things that grow. There's lots of holidays that get celebrated with lots of different foods. Plus, it's a very outdoorsy kind of country. It's quite hot most of the year. So you spend most of your time kind of on picnics or on barbecues or on trips. And food is always kind of involved in that. It's all about, I suppose, glut or... Abundance. Abundance. That's the word I'm looking for rather than glut. I think when, when we grew up, we didn't... It just seemed very natural, you know. You just grow up where you grow up. But only when we moved here to the UK and traveled around kind of... Europe, Northern Europe in particular, we realized how unique to the area this kind of culture of, you know, hospitality and sharing food and uh, cooking for people uh, in a big way. I mean, here in the UK, when you go out with friends, it's like, come for a beer. You know, it's like, let's go for a beer. We'll go to the pub. We'll go have a beer. We'll go have a drink. Everything is very drink based, whereas kind of where we come, it's like, Let's go and eat. Let's, you know, let's make a cake. It's all about food. So it's just like a bit of a different kind of aspect of how you interact with people. Yeah. And as we started traveling around the region, we, we realized that it's like a common thread throughout these cultures of, you know, somebody comes, you lay a table, you spread, you give whatever you have to give. And, you know, the, the spirit of hospitality. And I think a lot this is really something that we tried to bring forth in the book. One of the things that I love about this book is you, each chapter you take us to a, a, a on a tour with you, and it's it's just a, a beautiful description of of the country that you visited. The pictures are uh, absolutely amazing, and it's followed by recipes from the region. And you mentioned Israel, so I'm, I had tagged here a Haifa, Israel bonfire night and you talk about the bonfires and, and the, the abundance of food and and then the full and followed by recipes i mean it was just really uh i felt i was with you on uh on this trip so uh that is so nice, yeah. that is so nice to hear so tell us about the food in uh israel in, in haifa and how they how they cook it with the bonfires so i, th- I think just to, to like 
say we were so lucky because in in 2019 when we did all these trips we we took our photographer with us and she was and you know she's done all our books with us she's not our photographer she's a friend that's a photographer that has done all the <laughs> all we, don't our, own we don't own a photographer but she's not done yet. Uh, <laughs> not yet she's done all our books with us she does the financial times column with us and we really wanted to, you know, because a lot of times when you do these books, people go on the trips, but then they send the photographer separately. But we really wanted to do the trips together so that we're capturing kind of what's happening. And we didn't really go with a massive plan. We went to like experience things and record them as they were going and then find what we wanted to use from that material. So I agree. The photography is absolutely beautiful. And Patricia did an amazing job with it. And she captures the essence. And when we were in Haifa, which is kind of where I grew up, actually. I'm, I grew up, grew up just outside of uh, Haifa in a little kind of village. And this kind of holiday bonfire night in Israel is, is a big, it's a big thing. And what was funny is when Itamar and I, we, la- we were there at that time as well. And we started talking about our memories uh, as kids from this time. And they were so similar, even though he's a Jerusalem boy and I'm kind of, I'm Haifa, it's different parts of the country and it would be kind of we would assume quite different traditions but this whole aspect of like chasing after any wood or any kind of flammable materials that you can get as kids and and starting these fires and then the cooking is very very simple yeah it's very elemental it's just because it is it is a holiday for kids essentially so it's never anything too elaborate but just i think that's kind of a common thread for every israeli child is these bonfire potatoes they're just wrapped in foil and cooked in the embers. And then when you come to eat them, they're all sort of charry on the outside, but so smoky and sweet and full of flavor inside. And you eat them and your fingers get black and your whole face gets black from the charcoal. But the flavor is so deep and intense and unique that it's quite sophisticated, actually. But for something very, very simple. Yeah, it's uh, something really special that, it, that it's kind of a privilege to be able to share. One of the things that I that I really love about this book and the whole style of cooking is here in the States, we tend to, for the most part, have we we need to buy equipment that's expensive, whether it's expensive gas grill or a smoker or a pellet grill, or you know, you you're talking about hundreds, thousands of dollars. I mean, there are people that have rigs that are just you can't even imagine. Well, I'm sure you you know of, but here it's not a. You're not concentrating on the what you're cooking on. You need fire, you need a grate, and basically that's it. It's the food. The concentration yeah. is on the food, and it just shows you can cook incredible food with just the simplest equipment, which really is is, is terrific. I mean, don't get us wrong. We love a bit of fancy kit. <laughs> like we we are we are the ones that buy everything. Well, you not, know, not barbecues. No barbecues. We're in our London but apartment. But. We like any kitchen gadget. We're the easy sell. Like we're the. But we we do it for for fun. You know, it's not essential. I know that you can make delicious food with. You know, you just need a source of heat the best ingredients that you can get and a little bit of attention and care and, you know. No, and also that is absolutely not what we saw on the trips. No one was using any kind of fancy equipment. Like in these massive restaurants, 
because we did some in like people's homes and outside, but there's some in restaurants. In these restaurants, they're feeding hundreds and hundreds of people with absolutely delicious food. And the grill is the most rudimentary thing it's you so would It's so basic. It's just like a trough with, you know, roaring coals in. Yeah. Sometimes with wood, sometimes with coal. One of the barbecues we saw was literally like grease blocks just to like protect little segments so they could kind of have a hotter source, a, a colder source of heat, a more smoky source. Like it was divided into these like three uh, elements just with like building breeze blocks. It looked like the most dangerous, most not health and safety kind of uh, way to, to to run a grill. In the UK, health and safety is a very big kind of thing, especially in the restaurant industry. You have to comply to all these things. Definitely most of the places we went to see would not comply with anything that the UK would instruct, but cooked absolutely amazing food. Yeah. And they have all these like little tricks that we were picking up that you think, you know, they make these kebabs in uh, southern Turkey. We were traveling in Adana and Gaziantep. They make uh, these kebabs and they're from a meat that they chop by hand. So the texture is kind of loose. It's, maybe. it's a bit looser than you would maybe expect from like a minced kind of uh, kofta or kebab thing. And so, But then to, to keep it together, they take one of these amazing flatbreads that they have, which are part of the food of everything. And they press at, in as they kind of par cook the kebab, they press it between two flats of, of bread to compress it a bit, soak up the oil and help you roast, you know, grill it all the right the way. And then they serve you the same kofta on that bread that's soaked with all these delicious juices. And it's just such a simple elemental way to make sure that you're not starting too much smoke on your fire. So don't, not all the kind of fat from the kofta goes into the fire, but that you get all the flavor nonetheless. So like little amazing tricks like yeah, that. It's we like were that, that moment of attention is really special to learn yeah. to, to, to see, see. Yeah. yeah i'm going on this tour with you and i know i'm i'm not going to pronounce this correctly so please help me out here tessalokinki greece where you had anti-crisco yeah. yeah okay thank yeah. you and this the anti-crisco smoked and charred lamb shoulder is looks um, oh it's absolutely delicious yeah absolutely yeah. delicious so this is it's uh, anti-cristo which is literally means in front of the fire in front of the hearth and it's such an ancient form of cooking that you know they they trace it back to greek empire cretan empire and you can just see soldiers just skewering their meat on their swords and just plonking it across from the hearth so not direct heat but just very very gentle kind of secondary heat and smoke and cook it for a long long time and what happens is it's not it is yes smoky but in a very very subtle very delicate way and the meat just absolutely melts it's one of the things that are so simple so delicious finish it with very gentle sprinkling of oregano and a squeeze of lemon and it's just heaven yeah. now we're getting to lunchtime and now i'm gonna get i'm getting hungry <laughs> thinking about that you know when we add that just the flavors are so so elemental to what they are lamb lemon juice oregano that's all it is a bit of a kind of whiff of smoke and it's just the most delicious thing i have to thank someone who usually doesn't get involved but my wife actually saw you guys. So in, in this family, in my family, I'm the outdoor cook, right? I'm on the grill and stuff, you know, but and and, it, and the funny thing is, it's always the joke. My wife prepares the food like she'll marinate it and stuff. And then 
I'll put it on the fire. And then everyone says, oh, Leonard, you, you, what a cook. <laughs> so she saw you guys on a, um, you were doing a cooking class. That is how we found you. And she said, you have got to, first of all, we have to get the book. She said they were so entertaining. She loved your class. And then she also said, you know, you're having them on. You have to cook some of the food from the book. And we want to cook all the food from the book. <laughs> but we had a dinner. You have these. These were three outstanding and not difficult recipes to make. So for anyone listening to this, these are not difficult recipes. This was grilled cabbage with garlic, with chili garlic butter. Yes, one of my favorite dishes. Whole baked red onions with sage, honey, and walnut dressing. And chicken, uh, chicken schmish in sweet confit garlic marinade. Yeah. Wow. That That's a yeah, nice menu. Yeah, good choices. That's a really good menu. Good yes, choices. She, she put that together. And then she, she also said to me, you have to ask them this question because she has been over this book uh... all over. She wants to know what you mentioned in the book, mild chili flakes. What is that? So we get Turkish chili flakes. They're called biber chili flakes. And what they are is a very fruity chili. And it's hard for, I don't really know what pepper they grow from, but it's very traditional in in Turkey to use them. And what they do is add like a really nice zingy, fruity Warmth. warmth rather than burn your tongue, tingle all your lips, kind of heat. So I think it's a lot about experimenting. And I know that actually in America, you're really big on your different types of chilies because there's like a big Mexican uh, population influence of the food. So I know that I, I wouldn't know which one to advise, but you speak to someone that works kind of in a in a good grocer or speak to someone in the know and find out which ones are like a fruitier chili that's really like, all it does is kind of, it just makes everything pop. It's almost citrusy, fruity, a bit spicy, because I'm not a massive fan of hot, burny kind of chili flavor. I find that it can detract from the flavor of the food rather than enhance it. So uh, this is my always my go-to favorite uh, chili to use, a Turkish biber flakes or uh, Aleppo chili. You could probably find more in... Orfa in... chili we use a lot. Too. And then Orfa chili is the kind of smoked version, which is kind of more treacly and a bit more smoky. So any one of those would work really well. Uh, rather than one that's like a traditional, what we would call here, like an Italian flake chili, which is quite Maybe, quite spicy. Yeah, I mean, we we always in, with with all our uh, you know Americans that cook our recipe, they're like, "What chili is that?" And it's like in the UK, we don't have the variety that you have. We have green or red. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we get: green or red. And then we're always very envious. About uh, of our American friends that have this wonderful uh, selection, selection of chilies to choose from. There's even a whole modern family chapter about different chilies, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were so hoping with this book to come to the States. And because it's so big on barbecue, we were supposed to do this amazing tour. And we were hoping to kind of get a glimpse of what is done in America and kind of do a bit of what we do. Because I think we're quite different in terms of how we cook, because our cooking is very fast. If that makes sense, like it's very much about for the most, yeah, yeah. for the most. Apart from yeah, the antichristo, the the lamb is a bit of a slower thing, or we do a, a whole leg of lamb. But in general, what we do is quite 
quick, fast, lick of smoke, lit, lick of heat, good marinade, good little tricks. The book is all about these kind of little tricks that will make your... Like the food. sweet garlic marinade that you've yeah. made, which is, I urge you very much to try it on fish, like whole fish on the grill, yeah. rubbed with this marinade, or even on toast as it is. It's so good. Yeah, really? so just that marinade is delicious. So, so then our stuff is all about these like little things that you would do to kind of make a, a quick kind of piece of meat or a skewer or something, cook really quickly on a grill and a lot of vegetables because we do use a lot of vegetables. So we kind yeah. of really were looking forward to the slower, like, you know, whole hog roasts and all of that stuff, which really isn't part of what we grew up eating or making. But anyway, COVID got in the way. So we're still hoping maybe maybe Thank next year will be easier. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. if you come here, we, we would love to meet you. Yes. Go ahead, Jeff. We would love that, guys. We would love that. Maybe... Uh, in a more reasonable hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I also, what's great about the book is, you know, obviously it's a barbecue show, and you t- it tells how to barbecue this. But say it's middle of winter, you don't want to go out in the barbecue. You actually tell us how to cook it without the barbecue. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's a nice little uh, feature as well. Yeah. So we are, you know, we are we love barbecue and we love grilling. But we did have to open a restaurant for it because we don't have a garden where we live in London. So we had to open a grill house <laughs> in order to do all the grilling that we want. But at home, we have pretty much done all the cheats and all of the tricks and everywhere. You know, we didn't give up on grilling just because we can't go out, outside. So with our griddle pan, with our hot oven, uh, metal pans, you can do a lot. Yeah. You can do a lot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with our wood burning stove. Yes, mm-hmm. we did. Uh, we use our wood burner, our log uh, burner in the winter for potatoes and things like that. We made pizza once. That was horrible. That wasn't a success. That but... wasn't a success, but it was a <coughs> lot for, of fun. For sweet potatoes, potatoes, onions, whole roasted in like a log burner. That works quite well as well. So, yeah, we, we tested everything in a home kitchen because we felt that it's not fair to not give that option and also because that is actually how we would cook most of the time at home when we're not in the restaurant yeah so restaurant is for fire home is for little pans <laughs> home is for cheating yeah. yes you go on a trip you go to egypt you go to alexandria and you want to go to the uh the food markets and you're discouraged <laughs> to go <laughs> so discouraged it's quite hard to explain how much we were discouraged yeah. to go like to, to the point of uh of the guy in the hotel telling us there is no food market. And we have yet to meet a big city that doesn't have a proper food market. So we didn't believe him, but he was very adamant. No, he wanted us to go to the the shopping mall under the Four Seasons, yeah. where they had a beautiful food court where you can buy sushi. And I was like, I don't want, I haven't come for Alexandria for sushi. I have sushi <laughs> in London. Uh-huh. I want to see, uh, you know, Guts and Glory. And we got that in spades, didn't we? We did, but we had to follow a few old people with. So th- you know. this is our tr- our best like traveling trip, you know, especially if you're tip. interested traveling traveling tip tip. tip sorry, <laughs> uh, especially if you if you're interested in food, is that we always find an old lady or an old gentleman with bags, empty bags, that is, and we follow them around, hoping they will take us 
to the market and we always get to the most amazing places. I mean, like you that. do have to be in the right area. So we kind of knew that we needed to head to the old part of Alexandria. And then when you start seeing people walk towards you with full laden baskets, you start to look for this person without anything in their basket and you follow them. So we did end up in a few alleyways and then a few shops. And then we ended up in like the full blown food market there. And it is it's a lot to take in, especially yeah. when you come from a kind of desensitized Western city where none of these markets exist anymore, uh, because this is like some parts of it are a proper live market where they still have live pigeons, ducks, rabbits. You can choose the live ones and, you know, they they, they get slaughtered there. And But, but even though you, there is like an element of it being quite an assault, it's also quite important for us to remember where our food comes from. So seeing it in actuality, it's important, I think. And it's all very like day to day, you know, there's families, the kids, mothers and the kids walking around, they're doing the shopping. The produce from the farms is absolutely beautiful and amazing. Stunning. And then there's some guys pickling some pickles because that's always a big part of the Middle East. There's some guys smoking some fish. And then there's some like quite crazy cheeses, like really weird fermented cheeses, which we had never seen before. And also this fresh produce where you can buy your, you know, you can either buy like a duck and have it cooked for you in, in the back of the, you know, they have like fires in the back of their stalls or you just take it home and cook it yourself. But it was a really amazing, amazing market to see. Lots of vibrancy and yeah. Yeah, exciting place. One of the recipes in here from Alexandria, Egypt, is grilled pigeon with yeah. onions and pine nut jam. Now, tell us about that. The pigeon in 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 the Middle East and in Egypt in particular, it's their like it's the most luxurious meat that you can have. It's like their celebration dish, and uh, it's so well loved there. They call it the fruit of the meat. It's like the 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 most prized meat, and they are delicious. They're like more like quail, I would say, the African pigeons. Yeah, they're, they're lighter. Yeah. Like the French stuff that you would get here, which is gamia, or the, yeah. the local stuff that is farmed in the UK is probably kind of much redder meat, whereas the the pigeon in, in the Middle East, especially in Egypt, is quite kind of light, I suppose. Yeah. It's very delicious. It's, it's very delicious. It's like... A... Would you eat quails in, in the US or not really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Definitely much more similar, much more alike to, to, to a quail, quail meat, yeah. a lighter kind of meat, very nice grill, very nice. They also poach it filled with rice, which is an absolutely delicious yeah. way to eat it. And it's worth trying. Absolutely. The the stuff that we... The, the, the European pigeon that you get here and also in European tradition, you eat it completely... Rare. Almost raw, yeah. You know, it's very rare. Like like a game, you don't overcook it so that it stays quite moist because otherwise it can dry out quite a lot. Yeah. So quick grilling, but it does really benefit from the smoke and the quick grilling. And even though we were surprised when when we put it on a dish in, in our restaurant, it was quite popular. It's, very popular. It, yeah, it doesn't win everyone over because you definitely have to like be okay with quite rare meat. <laughs> but when we had it in Alexandria, it's cooked to. It's cooked all the way, cooked yeah. Cooked through completely, yeah. I think everywhere in the Middle East, you don't have rare pink, meat is, yeah, pink or rare meat. Everything is cooked all the way. Yeah. And this is kind of almost trickier to make sure that it doesn't dry out. Now, kebabs are a big are a big thing, right? And yeah. the, the yeah. one thing that uh, I always have difficulty with, with kebabs, is that the meat is done before the vegetables. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's never... you have any advice on, on the best ways to cook kebabs? So in a, in a lot of the in the a lot of the grill houses 
in the Middle East, you will order your kebab, your kofta kebab, or your meat skewers, and you would get the vegetables as a separate skewer. So tomatoes and onions on a separate skewer, and you will get that on the side. That said, they, where we've been in uh, southern Turkey, they do these kebabs with vegetables, for example, aubergines. We had them with uh, desert truffles. We had them with whole garlic bulbs. And they take a lot of care to make sure that they cook at the same time. So with the desert truffles, they cut it to exactly the same size as the meat. With the whole uh, onions, they, uh, the whole garlic, they poach the garlic first in lemon and water until it's completely soft. And then it just gets color on the grill, but it's cooked as it's threaded already. So there's a little bit of an art to it. But I think the the kind of quick fire way is, you know, have the meat on one skewer, have your vegetables on the other one and serve them separately. I think this way you'll get perfect results. We are thrilled to be speaking to Sarit Packer and Itamar Sarulovich. They are husband and wife. They wrote Chasing Smoke, Cooking Over Fire Around the Levant. The one thing that I have to ask you guys, husband and wife, you write cookbooks together, you run restaurants together. There is, you are together all the time. So we also, how, through, we also go through a lockdown together, which is completely <laughs> amazing. We still haven't killed each other. Yeah. What is Our your secret? Staff tend to call us, well, our staff call us a monster with two heads. So we kind of have no choice, but we're kind of attached now. We're very different in all our opinions. We argue about absolutely argue everything. all the time. So exhausting. Um, but we also know that ultimately we want the same kind of things, that we believe in the same kind of things. We enjoy each other's company, which is surprising, even after all this time. Still, yeah. And I think... I think if, we, you, if you enjoy my company so much, there's enough. There's another one I can get the yeah. <laughs> American doppelganger. No, we, we do enjoy like creating stuff together. I think we have great joy in, in the fact that we opened our first restaurant almost 10 years ago now. It's really kind of added a different element. Yes, it's made kind of life more intense, I suppose, because work comes home and it's work and it's everything. But it's also creating something that is special. And we've been very lucky to to have success in our businesses and with our books and stuff like that. And that makes it joyous. And we kind of made the choice many years ago that we didn't want to have kids. So all these things are our kids. You know, we have like books that we're proud of. We have restaurants that we're proud of. We have a, a great team that work with us that are kind of part of our family. In truth, this kind of choice we made about 17 years ago to leave our country we were born in and to move to a different country also makes a relationship stronger because your kind of ties or the places you can escape to like your family or your, you know, your, the mm-hmm. friends you grew up with, they're not there all the time. So you kind of have to, to trust it's a, it's each a other. Do, a do or die type of thing. Yeah, in a way, but uh, not that I advise this for everyone, <laughs> but for us it works, but we don't work in the same kitchen anymore. Yeah. It's um, important. It's important to, to find the, the line as well of yeah. what we do together, what we do apart. It's important to give each other space like you can say to Sarit, do you want to go to a movie with me? And she'd say, no, actually, I'd prefer that you go alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love you to go to a movie without me. Yeah. <laughs> so occasional space is good. Uh, yeah, and like separating separating different parts of the business. So when we do the books, Itama does all the beautiful writing of the stories, everything you've read that's so evocative of these 
cities and places, but then he lets me kind of write the recipes without getting too involved so that we separate these things because there's, you know, of course we have input and we have kind of things to say and criticism, of course, because that's kind of in our culture to constantly criticize each other, but we do separate what we're doing so that we try and make the most out of each other's strengths as well. Tell us about your experiences, your travels in uh, the country of Jordan and the, the Zob dish. I mean, this, is talk- we were, this is, you know, we were talking earlier about fancy kit and expensive kit. This is zero kit. I mean, <laughs> there's no kit. Um, what it is, is a very traditional Bedouin. Uh, but tell I them about say, Jordan first, because Jordan is absolutely amazing. I mean, Jordan is amazing. Jordan is was such a, such a special time for us because the country is beautiful. The food is gorgeous. The people are all, you know, so beautiful and so welcoming. Like I've never seen anywhere in, in my so life. So hospitable. like we... So hospitable. I couldn't do enough for you. And such nice manners everyone has. And, and if you imagine kind of the Middle East as like hustle, bustle, very kind of in your face. Jordan, Jordan is not like that at all. It's like everyone is so polite. Everyone has such nice manners. Everybody wants to make you comfortable and happy. It's, yeah, it's an amazing place. And it's very diverse as well. So you have green mountains in the north, amazing deserts down south. Petra is something that you have to see before you die. It's, you know, you can see a million pictures this of it. This is like an old city and carved in stone, in case people don't know, in this like red desert stone. It's and absolutely, like you, you've got to see it once in your life because it's something amazing. Yeah. So we, we were staying in a Bedouin camp and they were cooking, again, I, I wouldn't call it a dish. It's more like a method or it's not, it's not a dish in the Western sense, but they just dig a hole in the desert, in the desert floor, uh, light a fire in it, lower in a little, I don't know, rack, I guess. Yeah some chicken or some lamb or some uh, and some vegetables as well and cover the hole and then light a fire above it so it gets the heat from both sides and just leave it there for a couple of hours so it is an oven actually but very very smoky and the heat is very very dry so all the flavors just intensify but doesn't dry out because you know all the liquids don't have anywhere to go and it is just something out of this world, so special to eat, and especially that you know you're there in the desert night. The stars are magnificent, and you know there's nothing around. It's completely quiet. It's a very special very moment, special very memorable yeah. experience. And I know we had to put the recipe in the book, even though you know we don't think most people are gonna. I don't know how many it. people are gonna <laughs> you know dig dig a hole in in the ground in their backyard. But you should. It's. You I know. mean, they should, of course, but. We had to put it out there just because the experience was so special and, and meaningful to us that we knew it had to be in the book. You know what? I, it, my wife, if she could find a way to do it, she would she would do the whole in the yard. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah, you you're going to get a text one day. Oh, yeah, you were on your way home, can you bring me a shovel? Yeah. <laughs> that would not surprise me. <laughs> well, what she really needs to do is book you tickets to go to Jordan. I absolutely... Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I thought it was such a special experience. And, you know, we really kind of really just grew up across the river from there. The Jordan River separates Israel from uh, Jordan physically. And it just 
we had never been there before and we kind of went for quite a long trip there because we really wanted to see it from kind of north to south and it it is absolutely amazing gorgeous gorgeous the only thing that may be a little bit difficult for a western visitor is that people smoke everywhere and we're not used to it anymore yeah it's mm. definitely it's apparently the highest smoking per capita yeah. kind of country so that's a bad thing about it but that's the only bad thing about it we were we were so funny like we're in the hotel where we were staying all uh we were in the lobby and then every so often someone would come and say to reception say my room smells of cigarettes and it'd be like yes and to read and eat tomorrow the one the one thing that jeff and i are terrible at especially when we have guests as fantastic as you and and who we've enjoyed speaking to and could go on and on is saying goodbye but we respect your time. You have to start your day. We're going to start our day. Or maybe Jeff's going to go back to sleep. Who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, have a little snooze, Jeff. We won't judge. We won't judge. Before we let you go, before we let you go, where could people get the book? Uh, this is just, I mean, it is really recommended. Like Glenn said, this is just not just a cookbook. It's a beautiful book just to look through. And it just, you know, where can people pick it up? I think pretty much everywhere in the in the US you can buy it online, but you can also from the special, we always kind of advocate the specialist independent bookshops, but Kitchen Arts and Letters, uh, Book Larder, Omnivore. Uh, Omnivore Books. Who are we missing? Probably missing someone. We're missing the LA, but I can't, the name is just... Now story. Serving. Now Serving, that's the yeah. one. Sorry. Any one of these, have them online. And yeah, you should definitely support independence if you can. Absolutely. But if you can't... Amazon. Amazon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The important thing is get this book because it will really, it will expand your cooking horizons incredibly. I, this weekend, we will be making some more things from this book. I mean, it's like we just start, it's like a, it opened, you know, the dam has opened and we just. <laughs> that is so nice. That is just yeah. beautiful to hear. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. So we thank you very much for coming on again. It's called Chasing Smoke. Cooking Over Fire Around the Levant, Sarit Packer, Itamar Sarulovic. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for coming on Baseball and Barbecue. And we hope that we can have you back on because you've been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sarit Packer and Itamar Sarulovic with their wonderful book, Chasing Smoke. I highly recommend it. If you love beautiful cookbooks, you've got to get it. So I recommend you get the book. And now one more thing. Please visit the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Support the authors that appear on this show and that are on there. And also go to baseballbbq.com for their wonderful grilling tools and accessories and their other items. And of course, go to Fifth and Cherry dot com for their incredible cutting boards and now jeff how do we end episode 103 baseball always brings you home by the poet and the musician shell krakowski and dave dresser baseball always brings you home